My name is Tom Bona. I'm a multi-award-winning blues drummer. I play with Sue Foley, Soulstack, and Raul in the big time. And I'm sitting here with a conversation with Mako and Talkin' Blues. So first of all, happy birthday. Thank you very much. I can't believe you're actually spending your birthday with me. <laughs> I told a friend I was doing this podcast, and he said, hey, that's a good birthday gift. So thank you. Has, have you had a good birthday day? Yeah, it's been great so far. Good. And I get to play drums tonight, so that's even better. Okay, so tell me about drums. I read somewhere that you actually started really young, and you started playing on... The drum set that your dad bought your mom. Yeah, that's a great story. That is a great story because I can't like I can't imagine my dad buying my mom drum set. Nobody nor can. can I imagine my mom playing the drums. <laughs> Nobody so, can. <laughs> well, the funny thing was we we had moved into a new community in Lower Sackville, Nova Scotia, where the um, the houses were built by the people who were living in them. So my dad built the house I grew up in. What did your dad do? My dad was a carpenter. He worked for the oil industry in the, on the ships for years with Texaco and Ultramar. Um, but he was also like an A1 carpenter. So he decided, um, they lived in a few places in Halifax and Dartmouth. And uh, there was this new uh, co-op community that was opening up about 20 minutes outside of Halifax. And they thought that would just be perfect. So it was like new subdivisions they were building. And uh, he built the house. Like I remember walking to the foundation with all the smell of the wet muck and the cement and then all the, all the timber and burning of the trees and stuff and clearing the land. And uh, like all those smells now today, when I smell muck, that's what I think of is my childhood and the house my dad built. Wow. Right? So anyway, in this community, um, people became friends because we're all there building houses over a year or two year period. And you get to know people really well in that kind of a community, um, helping each other. And, you know, I need someone to grab this board and help me get it up here and stuff like that. So they developed some really good friends and friendships. And then once the houses were built, um, they would have parties and stuff. And a, a few of the people in the neighborhood would come over. And my mom played piano and accordion. My dad played acoustic guitar. And they'd sing like old Hank Williams songs and stuff like that. And they'd have these great grand parties. And one of the neighbors said, hey, I play drums. And, and my dad was like, well, bring the drums. Said, well, I don't have any drums. <laughs> so that sort of sat in my dad's mind. And then my mom said, kind of nice to have a set of drums in the house. So I don't know how long after, a couple of weeks later, my dad shows up in the driveway. And he walks in the, in the door with a tom-tom blue sparkly tom-tom made by Silvertone, right. which actually Pearl was the manufacturer of the Silvertone drums that uh, Simpson Sears carried. He had been in the bargain basement at Simpson Sears, and this drum kit was there. It was like 300 bucks. So he was like, there's the drum kit. So he brought a drum kit home, put it in the dining room right next to the piano. I don't think my mom touched it because as soon as I saw that drum kit, it was mine. Did you have... Any history with the drums before this? Had you seen any? Yeah, there was an inkling of drums before that because I have an uncle in Halifax who's kind of a, like a famous local singer, bass player, songwriter, drummer. And I would go to my grandmother's house where he, he would be living or we'd, we'd walk into the house for parties and there was always band gear 
in the porch, in the front hallway, up against the wall, because he'd come from, from shows or tours, and he would pile all the gear in the house to make it safe so it's not in the vehicles. And so my early childhood was seeing all this gear and, and just like smelling it and walking by it and touching it. And I have a, a really early picture of me, I was probably five years old, sitting at a bass drum with a drumstick and actually hitting it. So I always was drawn to the drums. And then um, this uncle would play in bands and stuff and um, he would take me out on these shows. I was a big kid at 13 and he would take me out to his shows. Like I remember seeing Matt Minglewood band at the Misty Moon on Kemp Road in Halifax. I was 13 years old and he got me in because he knew all the, all the bouncers. And I was as tall as my uncle and as big as my uncle. And the bouncer sort of held up his fingers and he's like, show me your ID. And my uncle goes, oh, now he's fine. And then we go into the bar and there I am, 13 years old in an in a alcohol establishment. Yeah. But you know, one of the Maritime's most famous bands was there on stage. And I'd known Minglewood from the records and all of a sudden, I'm there with Minglewood, and then Minglewood comes down, and my uncle's talking to him. My uncle knows Matt Minglewood, and it just blew my mind, this whole what became possible. Wow. And I presume you probably have met Matt since then? I've met Matt since then. I have a cool story about that. He was a guest at the Mabel Blues Awards several years later, like probably five years ago. Right. And uh, I show up to rehearsal, and I walk into the rehearsal room, Matt's tuning his guitar. He looks up. He goes, hey, Tom. And my whole inside childhood just went, he knows my name. Wait a second. He remembered it from that what? incident? No, I just <laughs> think he was aware that I was the drummer. I think he may have like you know, seen who, who's in the Mabel Blues band, right. Tom Bona. And I'm sure he identified that he knows okay. sort yeah. of my path a bit. Because uh, coming from the East Coast, yeah. winning awards and stuff. He was aware of who I was, but I hadn't spoken to him like ever since <laughs> I was 13, right? That is so cool. So here I am, I don't know, like 45 or something walking in and he looks up, hey, Tom, it just blew my mind that this, like he's the Bruce Springsteen of the East Coast, right? Yeah, yeah. Like it blew my mind that he identified and knew who I was. So I kind of melted right in front of him, right? But the coolest thing was, here's Matt Minglewood up in Toronto at the Mabel Blues Awards. We performed with him, one song. But then the after party, he's an East Coaster. He's, he's not part of the Toronto scene. Mm -hmm. So he was a little bit intimidated with not knowing a lot of people. And I had found he kept coming back to me as sort of a, a, sort of a, a landing ground to feel like somebody knows... And so here I am hanging out with Matt Minglewood, but not only just hanging out with him, becoming really good friends with him and his wife, Barb. And uh, I was sort of his friend at the party that he kept coming back to. That just made me feel so good. You know? That's a great story. I think he is such an amazing person. He is. Tremendous yeah. person, yeah. And a, and a great musician as well. Yeah. Um, so did the drums take, did you take to the drums immediately? I took to the drums immediately. I remember a cassette. We had used to have those little handheld cassette recorders, like the classic ones, right, with yeah. the buttons in the front. My dad had bought it in a bunch of cassettes from uh, Radio Shack. And uh, we used to just, you know, kids, you'd fart on it or whatever, right? You'd have fun. 
And uh, I remember one time I set up the tape recorder and I hit record and I was trying to learn wipeout. So I was like, trying to learn how the accents go and stuff like that. And I remember my sister yelling from down the hallway, would you shut up? So that's, I, I would play those drums every single day. I'd get the headphones on, I'd play to Matt Minglewood, I'd play to whatever records I had there at the times, like Deep Purple, Lover Boy, and all that stuff, and just put the headphones on and just try to play what I was hearing. Which drummer did you hope to, or which drummer were you influenced by that at that point? At that point, I was influenced by the local drummer. His name is Donnie Chapman, and he was a phenomenal drummer. And it's funny, he had the longest legs I'd ever seen, yet he sat the lowest at the drum kit that I'd ever seen. Hmm. So he'd angle his drums on almost like a 45-degree angle, and his knees would be up in the air, and his ass is down on the floor almost, right? Like really low, but he had this thing where he would just sort of flat hand all the way along his gear because it was all on angles and he would just... Yeah. But uh, he was on... My uncle did a bunch of recording in Halifax with a band called Chalice and Bob Quinn was the main songwriter. And uh, my uncle had recorded these records, uh, full-on studio records with uh, keyboards, guitar, bass, drums, background vocals. And uh, th these are recordings that never got released. But it's in my DNA because I swear to God, I've listened to those recordings about 5,000 times. And there were like three full-on records that my uncle was singing and Donnie Chapman was drumming on. And uh, he was my first biggest drumming influence because I'd heard this stuff as a kid. And like I say, it just became my DNA. It was like the music of the soundtrack of my life. And that drummer was the guy, and I got to meet him. I, he knew he knows me. Like it's just, it was really my biggest influence in drumming. And it was it was pop, sort of uh, almost art rock pop on the softer side with lots of vocal harmony. It wasn't anything heavy, um, but very very musical. And uh, my biggest inspiration of like why I'm in music is because of my uncle and these recordings. Wow, have you ever told him that? I guess it was a start of I think he's aware of it. I could tell him again. I should I should remind him that uh, about that. And same with Donnie Chapman and Bruce Dixon, the bass player who's now playing with uh, Miles Goodwin, huh? uh, blues friends of the blues. Um, yeah, but I mean the, all these guys like these these first call top grade players in Halifax, and here I am as 13, 14, 15 year old kid hanging out with the the top of the crop in Halifax because my uncle was Paul Eisen. <laughs> Is there anything that he might have shared with you back then? Paul? Yeah, about the industry, about play, being a musician, about playing music that, that made an impact on you. Well, I would say the, the biggest impact is that how, how much work it is, like how hard you have to work to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, like my uncle, I always felt he was going to be the next Elton John or the next Phil Collins. And I would see him. He was on television shows with Ann Murray. And uh, Roger Whitaker and like all these big names. And I thought, my uncle is going to be famous. And through the years, through the years, he kept making records and kept putting them out, kept doing shows. 
he, he had moved to Toronto for a spell. He did some recordings with uh, a guy who produced uh, Rita McNeil. Um, can't think of his name right now. But, uh, I mean, he's, he tried his whole life to get that one step further into, like, some kind of sustainable career in music. Right. Like, you know, touring the world or touring Canada or whatever. And um, the, the one of the biggest things I learned about him is that it doesn't matter how good you are. Because he was a phenomenal, still is, a phenomenal vocalist and a fabulous songwriter. And what I kind of learned from that path is that it doesn't really matter how good you are. It doesn't mean you're going to get where you want to go. Right. You know, not in a negative sense, but in, in the sense of just the music industry ends up still being somewhat of a chance. And you can, you can work your ass off and still not get anywhere, or you can write one song, be a one-hit wonder, and then you have a career run off the end of that. And there's no predicting when that happens or who it's going to happen to. But your uncle still plays. My uncle still plays, man. I saw him, I was in Halifax two weeks ago at the Carlton with Sue Foley. He came out. And the first thing he said to me after he saw me play, he's like, so can you, uh, can you record drums at home? If I send you some tracks, can you, can you put some drums on my songs? And I was like, absolutely. Okay, so if, if that happens... What would that mean to you to actually lay down some drum tracks? It's actually already happened. Okay. Uh, it wasn't in that way, but what happened was I was in Halifax about two years ago. I had my drums in the van, and he said, "Tommy, Tommy, I'd I'd like to uh, I'd like to put some song, some drums on my song. I just wrote this song," and I'm like, "Sure. Well, why don't you come over, Karen, my sister's house? I'll set up the drums." And my nephew, Nick, is a uh, he went to school for sound engineering and he's got his pro tools and a couple of mics. And I said, well, I'll just, I'll set up the drums in the basement and we'll just play the song. So he came, my uncle came with a piano and he played it and sang. And then, uh, I don't know if we did it together. We may have done it together. Yeah. And I had the headphones on, he had headphones on. And the funny thing was my family's sitting there in the basement, my sisters and my mom and stuff. And they're, they're just kind of ready for, you know, some drums to be recorded, right? <laughs> what they didn't realize was that when I'm recording, I'm on 11, and it's like a, a very focused brain that needs to zero in on the tempo, the time, the feel, the arrangement. And the song counted in, and then I started playing drums, and you could almost see like the, the Maxwell video, the Maxwell ad where yeah, the hair's yeah. blowing back. Well, I'm playing drums. I'm like, whack, bang, boom, next, back, and it's in the basement. And they've never heard anything like that before. Just really going for loud, big drums, and it, it kind of shocked them all because they were like, "Oh yeah, I was just sitting there," and then all of a sudden, ah, drums, right? But uh, I got to record drums for my uncle, and that was the first time I did it. That was a few years ago, wow. and uh, it was a f- wonderful feeling because now here is sort of the loop, yeah. the loop closing, right? And now he's coming to me to do to do drum work for him, whereas as a kid, I did have an opportunity, and he always gave me the opportunity. When I was 15, he was in a band called Spice, which was a high-end cover band on the East Coast. They'd play all the universities, and they'd be sold out everywhere they played. They'd play the cabarets, and it would be sold out everywhere, like just jam-packed. And... Uh, he would get me up to drum because he knew I was drumming and an enthusiast and was playing at home. 
And uh, he just took a chance. And he, I'm 15, and he's like, hey, do you want to wanna play a couple songs? And I'm like, I've never played to a full house full of people before. And uh, I think the first time I played, there was no mics on the drums. It was a big room, but no mics. Right. And uh, he just said, yeah, just hit them hard. So I got up, and I'm 15, and I'm playing the Beatles songs with them. Like, I don't know, Can't Buy Me Love, Please Please Me, or whatever, those kind of songs. And uh, it was the biggest thrill. And I remember the second time I, he got me to do it, there was a PA, and all the drums were mic'd. And the power that I felt when I hit those drums for the first time, for me, playing with a PA, throwing those drums loudly into the room, I was sold at that very moment. It's like, this is what I want to do. I want to. The people were dancing, and they were dancing to me playing drums. The whole room was <laughs> moving because I'm playing drums. Right. That just blew my mind. Um, so before this, I mean, you started playing drums in your early five, six years old, and then. And, at 15, was that the first time you played with a band in front of people? Like, did you play in a band other than... I was in high school bands. <clears throat> so I'd always have garage bands, um, kids from high school, I'd assemble them. And, you know, at, at, at well, junior high, high school, everyone's had a sort of different degree of ability to play. And I had some guys, and they're all kind of struggling to to make stuff happen. You'd find the odd guy that was actually, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, he has some kind of repertoire. He knows how to play his instrument, and he's comfortable and can sort of create a bit of a groove or whatever. And I remember my mom saying one time, I had the drums in the basement, and I'd have four or five guys over playing guitar, bass, um, the odd time to be keyboards, but it's mostly guitars, bass, and drums. And uh, I came up one time after a rehearsal or a practice or a jam, whatever. And my mom just came up to me and she said, you know, you're the best one. And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, you seem to know what you're doing. Nobody else knows what the hell they're doing. (laughs) I was like, oh, okay. But I understand what she was saying. She was basically just saying, like, she could see the seed that I had and the uh, the drive that I had to be the best that I could possibly be on my instrument. And that's sort of sh- shown over the other guys who were still working their way up to how they played their instrument. So it was actually a nice backhanded comment that, you know, she sort of helped me understand that, oh, I am good and I can do this. And that helped sort of propel me with, with strength to... F- push it further and, and realize that, yeah, I can do this. And I remember one time I was playing along to, it was either Deep Purple or Loverboy. And I Two remember- Two very I, different drumming styles. What's though. that? Two very different drumming styles. Very different, still big drum kits, um, driving, uh, Matt Frenette and, uh, oh geez, what's his name? Deep Ian Pace. Purple. Ian Pace, yes. Yeah, he was he was fastest hands mm-hmm. ever. Um, I think it was Lazy that I was playing to. Lazy, it's got lots of stops and starts. And uh, I was just into it. I'd worked on it all week or whatever. And then, then my mom had come home from grocery shop and I ran upstairs and I just said to her, you know, I can do this. She's like, do what? <laughs> I said, I can play like the drummers in Deep Purple and Loverboy. Like, I'm, it's not exact, but I get it. And I could play it on those records. And it just, it was this moment in time where I realized that I can compete with these guys. And if it's not a competition, it's more of the concept that 
I'm well aware at this age that I can do this. I can play these in these bands. I, my brain works, my hands work, and I can be a drummer is when I realized I could be a professional drummer. I remember one time watching live shows, like at the big concerts, and just wondering, how does a drummer hit the snare drum every time, the right time? Like, how come he doesn't miss it or drop a stick or something, right? As a kid, I'm like, how does he do that so consistently? But he did it consistently. And because I was aware of that, I also put that into my playing to be aware of when I hit that snare drum, I'm hitting it with the most conviction that I could give that snare drum. And that's what's gotten me a lot of work, too, because a lot of guys don't whack the snare. And the snare is, like, next to the vocal on any kind of recording in modern pop or rock. It's the vocal and the snare drum. So the second most important thing in all these recordings is the drive of that snare drum. And if you're not hitting it, you're not driving a song. So... I presume somewhere around that point in your life, you decided that you will pursue music as a career, having an uncle who was in bands and making a living playing music would tell you that this is possible. And then you went to a university for jazz percussion. Yeah, St. FX and Inigonish, uh, Nova Scotia. I went for one year. Okay. And I remember before I went, I had some of my colleagues saying, dude, why are you going to school? You're a great drummer. And I was like, yeah, but I want to be a better drummer. I want to learn more. I want to learn how to read music to the point where it can help me learn music down the road. <clears throat> and uh, when I went to, first went to university after playing in bands at the big cabarets, I played the Palace and the Misty Moon with these cover bands. It went to Newfoundland, did like a week, you know, in bars in Newfoundland and stuff. I would have calluses and blisters and broken sores on my hands from playing. Right. So what university did for me, I had a teacher named Mike Vosbein. He was sitting in for the one year, and he was from Atlanta. Wonderful guy, wonderful teacher. And the first thing he did is in the, at the drum lesson was he pulled out a drum pad. And I'm like, what about the drum kit? And he's like, nope. We're going to start with the drum pad. And he taught me technique, the molar technique, which through the rudiments and through constant, constant practice, it got me to the point where I can come off playing, hitting as hard as I can hit on big festival stages for an hour or 90 minutes. I walk off stage and there's not a single callus, blister, cut, sore, nothing on my hands. So I learned how to hold my sticks. And if that's one thing I learned the most from university was I learned technique. So my technique now comes from all those studies and all that that solid year of playing on a drum pad we did do drum kit right. but the most important thing was getting those rudiments down on a drum pad with your hands in the proper form and that's carried me on now for for 20 30 years that you know i i even know some guys that are playing around now with big bands the guys i know he'll he'll put up on facebook pictures of his fingers with duct tape on it yeah. and cuts and sores i'm like dude Go back to the drawing board and get your hands back together. Right? <laughs> like he's a phenomenal drummer, yeah. but I, it surprised me that he still gets that kind of stuff because you can avoid that just by having the proper technique. Right. I, actually, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, now, you finished school. You still hang out. You, at one point or another, a few years later, you decided to move to Toronto. So it, before you moved to Toronto... Yeah, I went I, to university in uh, 1989, 89 to 90. I was about... 
He was about 23, so I was, I was known as a mature student at that time. And uh, so for, for 10 years, I stayed on the Halifax scene, and I was uh, playing in, again, a bunch of high-end cover bands, or some of the cover bands converted to recording bands, um, and we toured on that and did videos and all that stuff. So like for 10 years, kicked around the East Coast. But at one point in time, I realized that I could see the limitation for myself in the East Coast. And that limitation was the music that was um, selling at that time was grunge music and like the Rita McNeil and the Rankin family and stuff like that. And as much as I am a traditionalist, um, like I grew up with all that music. My dad played fiddle music all the time on the radio. And, you know, it's in my heart and soul and in my blood. But I was a pop music fan. And I could see the Toronto scene was just alive and vibrant with all these pop bands, putting out records, doing tours. And I just felt like I couldn't grasp that access to those bands from where I was. And I didn't want to be in a grunge band. And I didn't want to play with like the Rita McNeil kind of bands because that just felt to me like I'll do that when I'm older. I felt like... I want to go and find some cool pop bands and play and tour and and play the music that I love. And then my my by then my second most influential drummer was Jeff Pacaro from Toto. Right. And I say that in the blues circles and everyone grumbles. Ooh, Toto. You know? <laughs> but I know under I know under their breath they like some Toto songs and if they don't I'll buy them a beer and force feed it to them because it's wonderful music mm -hmm. incredible harmonies incredible musicianship um, it's just what I grew up with my sister had the record I listened to it inside out and then I followed the man about the next records and you know Steely Dan and in the crowded house and all that kind of pop music that had a lot of really intelligence built into it mm -hmm. it wasn't just bubblegum pop music it was really intelligent music and a musician's band that's the other thing the high end of the musicianship and Jeff Beccaro was was like my drumming idol the, my whole life you know and I even as a teen I sort of tried to look like him I'd buy the glasses that he used to wear and I'd try to cut my hair like him you know I don't know how many people how many other people would have dressed like Jeff Carroll but <clears throat> that's pretty cool well that's what I mean right yeah I mean I, I think of the percussion work or the drum work on Africa mm -hmm. and it's just it's stunning his drum yeah work. well that song was initiated by him he did this beat yeah and then uh, one of the other guys was like hey that's kind of cool and he's dun 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 ba, dun 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 Right, so Jeff has a songwriting credit on that because he basically initiated that song. Right. So, when you decided to come to Toronto, how difficult was it for you to come here and make a name for yourself or to get yep. into the scene? Well, here's the cool thing. <clears throat> I was told by somebody it takes two years to integrate into the Toronto music scene in order to become the musician you want to be in this city. And I kind of poo-pooed that. I'm like, oh, yeah, whatever. I moved up in 93 for a few months. I was playing with a singer-songwriter who was living in Halifax, did a record. I heard his record. He was doing an East Coast Music Awards showcase, and I was working at the record store. So he came in with his new record, and I listened to it at home, and I loved it. But I also heard some limitations on what was going on in the rhythm section. So I took him out to lunch one day, and I said, Jeremy, I need to be your drummer. And he looks at me and goes, well, I already have a drummer. I'm like, 
I need to be your drummer. I said, I've heard your tracks. It's a great record. But there's some challenges I hear in some of the downbeats and how the bass and drums are working together. And I said, uh, you have a East Coast Music Showcase coming up. I need to be your drummer on that. And he's looking at me going, oh, um, okay. <laughs> and he hired me. So we went and we did this showcase. And again, it was heavyweight first call musicians on the stage. And I remember we did the showcase and I hadn't played with one of the guitar players. Like we didn't rehearse with the guitar player. He just showed up and did his parts. And at the end of that showcase, he turns around and he goes, where the hell did you come from? Cause <laughs> I got the music and I delivered it as the artist wanted to hear it. Right. Where did that comfort confidence come from? That's a good question. I don't know. I think I just saw this artist as, as someone that I understood and I really got his music. It was kind of like John Mellencamp, and I was so into John Mellencamp. Um, I think it came from, like, I wanted him to be the best he could be at this showcase, and I knew with who he was working with, it wouldn't be the best. And I just felt like the confidence came from me knowing this guy, knowing that I can help him, and knowing that I wanted to help him, and I wanted to do his showcase. So I just... You know, I didn't tie him up and beat him up. I just gave him that, planted that seed, right. and he went with it. He went for it. And then I played with him. I was on a couple other records with him. And so I moved to Toronto to play with him because he'd moved back home. And I, was, I got the itch, and I'm like, ah, oh, I got to go up. I got to go up. So I packed up my Honda Civic with my drum kit, drove up, Stayed in Toronto for two, three months, just trying to get my feet planted and stuff and playing with this Jeremy guy. And and uh, after three months, I ran out of money and drove home with my tail between my legs. Okay. Back home. What, what was the impression? Outside of the music scene, but just this kid from East Coast coming to Toronto for yeah. the first time? Big city. Yeah. What was that impression? It was overwhelming. Because it was huge, yeah. and it was busy, and it felt dangerous as a younger person. And uh, it, it, I wasn't really making any money. We were doing Queen Street shows. Like, you know, I'd, we'd play the whole show or whatever, and it's like, here's your 20 bucks. So I was <laughs> like, oh, God. Oh, this is not what I thought it would be, right? I thought maybe somehow in two months I'd be able to establish myself, right? <laughs> But that quite didn't didn't quite happen. But what did happen was the bass player on these shows we were doing in '93 was the bass player for the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir, which was a huge Canadian band mm -hmm. that would play anywhere across the country, and the place would be sold out. Um, R&B, funky, soul, pop, rock, gospel, three vocalists, horns, keyboards, bass, drums, guitar. Um, they were a phenomenal band. So this bass player was playing with me with Jeremy, Jason Mercer. And him and I got along so great. We're both Libras. And uh, when I moved back home, he kept in touch with me. And he said, I know at some point the Bourbons are going to need a new drummer. Because they were going through drum chair and some guys were not quite working out for whatever reason so I kept tabs with him for two years and the other thing he hooked me up with a guy who would record every Bourbon Tabernacle Choir live show that they ever do like you know like the like they do for the Grateful Dead like those tapers right <laughs> yeah yeah I'd get a tape in the mail every two months 
And it was a new live show that was recorded at the Horseshoe or at the Lee's Palace or whatever. And so for two years, I'm learning the repertoire of the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir live, their live version, which when bands record records, once they start playing it live, they never play it like that record anymore. So there's this live thing that goes on. The arrangements change, things change. And so finally came around, I was playing in Halifax with pop bands and um, Tony D had moved to town, Tony D from Monkey Junk. Mm -hmm. And he, I knew him from working at the record store because he'd, he'd sell me his records as consignment. Right. So one day he came down and goes, hey, you're a drummer. And I'm like, yeah, what's it to you? He said, I need a drummer for, for Cheers. There's this bar in Halifax, you play seven nights. And I'm like, great, I'll do it. He goes, can you play blues? And uh, I looked, my eyes sort of darted across the room back and forth a couple of times, and I was like, yes, I can play blues. Meanwhile, I hadn't really played <laughs> blues. I'd studied jazz, right. so I knew how to swing. Um, but blues is a different beast. So he's like, okay, well, you come to a jam on Sunday night, and if I like you, I'll hire you. I'm like, okay, great. So he left, and I ran up to the blues section, and I got all his CDs, <laughs> and Robin Ford, and uh, Jimmy Vaughn. And I went home into my rehearsal space for the next four days, and I played along to these records, Tilt a Whirl, Robin Ford, uh, the one with Talk to Your Daughters on it, and then his actual recordings. So I kind of knew, so I would know what his style and approach was. I'd already heard somebody, I didn't have to study it. So I went and studied this stuff for four days. And I showed up at the jam session. Wait, before you do that. Yeah. So you study for four days. How are you feeling about getting the feel of shuffles and swings? And yeah, I, I kind of got it together. I, I, my capacity for learning stuff is pretty quick. And because I could already swing jazz, I knew how to shift that over to the shuffle of blues, which is basically jazz is the three notes and blues is the two notes, right, of a triplet. And then it's like the music forms of the slow blues or if it's a rumba or something like that, different shuffles. Um, yeah, I seem to get a concept of it. I felt like I was, I had a lot of work to do, but I just got the general concept of, of how to play the blues. So I show up to this jam session and it's got Dutch Mason's uh, harmonica player on it. I can't think of his name right now. Rick something. And so I was a bit intimidated. It has a bass player, uh, Fish Fancy from Dutch Mason. And, you know, Dutch Mason's like the godfather of blues yeah. in Canada. So here I am again, this young kid sitting in with these guys. I get up and I play one song. And Tony turns around and he goes, you're hired. <laughs> Do you remember like the song? Hey? Do you remember the song? No, it was just a shuffle or something. It was very simple. So the the path along that with Tony D was he hired me for this Cheers gig. We did he just he did a lot of Stevie Ray Vaughan at the yeah, time, yeah. so I had to learn that stuff and pretty challenging and high energy. And uh, so at the end of this week long gig that he had hired me for, I remember he came up to me and goes, "Do you want to go to Europe with me?" And I was like, "Yes." He's like, "Do you want to think about it?" And I said, "No." Let's go. And he goes, okay, under one condition. I'm like, okay, what's that? Move to Ottawa and be my drummer. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to move to Ottawa. <laughs> but I did it because 
that got me. Then I was four hours from an audition with the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. So I felt like, okay, well, this could work out. This could work out. So, so I, uh, you already knew that that was the goal. Or that the goal was goal. to get to be the Bourbon's drummer. Wow. And Tony uh, somehow just opened up this opportunity to get me closer to it. But for his own ways yeah, yeah. and means, I was his drummer now. But you also get to go to Europe. That's the thing. So here I am, I've got Europe in my back pocket, and the Bourbons call, and they say, hey, we're going to audition you on May the 5th. And I was already in <laughs> Ottawa. Right. I've got my tickets to Europe. I was, like, feeling really good. And I'd already listened to the Bourbons live for two years. So they call me. I'm, I'm to go to Europe May the 10th. I get an audition May 5th. I drive into Toronto. The Bourbon House, 271 Dundas Street. Famous music house, many, many parties. I get down to the rehearsal space. Gordy Johnson's there. Tyler Stewart's there. Tyler Stewart's the drummer for Bare Naked Ladies. Gordy Johnson is Big Sugar. And then the band is there. And I'm like this kid from Halifax. All of a sudden, I'm stepping into the Toronto scene. And I'm kind of like, do these guys have to be here? And they're like, oh, no, they're cool. And I'm like, yeah, they're cool for you, but a little bit intimidating to do an audition with these. Did you actually say that? Yeah, well, to, my, to, to Jason. I'm like, do they have to stay? And he's like, oh, they're cool. I'm like, yeah, but I was kind of nervous. He's like, I oh, don't worry about it. So anyway, I sat down, and Chris Brown, the keyboard player for the Bourbons, he's like, okay, so what songs do you know you wanna, do you want to run through? And I said, any song at all. And he looked at me and he was like, well, what do you mean any song at all? I said, name a song. Again, with confidence, right? right. He's like, well, do you know all our songs? I said, yep, count it in. <laughs> so we did a couple of songs here, there, another one here, another one. And we did the live arrangement because I knew the live arrangement. And I was determined not to write down a single note about any of the songs. So here I was with no paperwork. Just me and a pair of drumsticks. Call it in. And I played through all of their songs and blew their minds because I knew their songs almost better than they did. <laughs> okay, you studied them for two years, but how easy is it for you to listen to it on a regular basis and just lock into the drums and know what to do? It's very easy. I've been doing it my whole life. I, I don't know if all, all musicians are like this, but when I listen to music, I can't listen to music like it's background elevator music. I am constantly listening to what is happening. What's he hitting? Not just drums. The, what's the bass guy? Oh, listen to that bass line. Or listen to that background harmony that's like so far away up, but it's so high. And I think that comes from listening to, to Toto Records because of the musicianship and, and the, the incredible uh, amount of music they pack into one song, like mm -hmm. the parts the arrangement and all that stuff. And because I devoured that music, and the same with my uncle's band, those recordings, I devoured that stuff to the point where Bob Quinn, the songwriter, had alluded to maybe going back in and digitally remastering these recordings. And I said, if you do that, I have to be in the room because I swear to God, I've listened to this more than you have, right? I'll know the nuances of it. But you're not necessarily copying all the drum parts from the concert recordings you, you were saying it's not so much about copying the drum parts it's but about knowing the, knowing the song and when I play drums I never play drums 
I only ever play the song. So I'm playing the music. Half the time my arms are moving, I don't even know what they're really doing because I'm focused on who's singing in front of me, like live, what that singer's doing, where the pocket is, what's required because I'll never play a drum roll over a, a vocal line. There's always a hole where I know that there's an opportunity that I could do some kind of little roll or something. But for the most part, when I play drums, the last thing I'm thinking about is technique or what am I playing other than does it sound good? Okay, so that and how old are you at this point? At that level of playing, I would say it would have been like 95. So like a good, you know, 20 years ago, is that 20? 30. So at that stage in your life, how are you, how confident are you of your abilities on the drums? Well, I'm confident. Everyone has their, their sort of shyness or their awareness. And, you know, what I learned around just before that time, I loved Rush. Moving pictures, Tom Sawyer. Right? Like a lot of drummers. You love Neil Peart. You just, <laughs> How could you not? You love them. Because it's so fanatical what they do, right? I would listen to, maybe not Tom Sawyer, but I would listen to some other thicker Rush songs where there's time changes and meter things and all kinds of stuff going on. And I thought, I listened to it, I thought, I can play that. Like I said to my mom that time, yeah, I can play that stuff. So I get down and with the headphones on, and I'm playing this stuff-ish, not really. And I realized at that point that Neil Peart was probably one of the biggest influences on my drumming. Not so much so that I learned all his stuff, but because I couldn't learn his stuff. And what I realized at that time that was that my limitations were actually my strengths because I'm not playing in Rush. So why do I need to learn all the Rush stuff? <laughs> I learned that when I was younger, realizing that I don't need to learn this. A lot of guys go and, and they woodshed rough Rush to learn all the stuff. And that's great if they're playing in a Rush cover band. Right. But I... I would never be playing in a Rush cover band. And it's the same with when I did jazz studies in university. I realized early on, like I could have been a teacher. I could have been, could have tried to be like a big jazz drummer, but I already knew that I wasn't going to be because my brain doesn't work like that. I don't think that fast. And my hands certainly don't play that fast. Like bebop. Ding, diddling, 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 diddling. First off to me, I don't find that all that musical mm -hmm. because what I find is musical is what speaks to your soul and touches your heart. And I always found if it doesn't do that for me, I'm not into it. And it's not like I'm a snob. I can listen to jazz like anybody can because I understand it because I studied it. But also if it doesn't go into my soul, I don't spend a lot of time on it. And I'm not talking all jazz. I'm just talking certain aspects of jazz that uh, just, it doesn't speak to me. That's, that's what I mean. So I learned that my limitations were that I can, uh, I can just play a simple drum beat. And 
it means more than playing a whole bunch of drum beats. Which makes total sense. But at, so at this point, you come into Toronto and you had said you wanted to be more of a pop. Yeah, well, like coming from pop, I wanted to be in those bands that had those record labels that would tour the country playing in a van. And uh, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. And so I made my way up here with basically the bourbons was my goal. Okay, so did you get the audition? I got the audition, I played it, and then I went to Europe. Okay. And I didn't know had I got it or not until I got back from Europe. So I went to Europe with Tony D. It was his first time over there. He went to England, and we met up with the Jeff Healy band. We were on the bus, Pat Rush. I remember I was playing. Pat was on stage, and uh, Ben Richardson, Tony D, and me were playing some club in England. And uh, I was doing a shuffle. And then we went, sat, and had some drinks, and Pat was sitting next to me. And he goes, you know, it's not really a shuffle you're playing there. And I looked at him, and I, I thought, I could be upset about this, or I could really <laughs> learn something. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when you're playing a shuffle, you play all the notes. But what I noticed what you're doing is every time you hit the bass drum, you don't hit the snare drum. So with the shuffle leg, I was doing like ba bop bop ba bop bop ba bop bop instead of ba bop 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 And he kicked my ass, but he did it on purpose so that I would learn that young boy, you're not doing the shuffle right. And he played with Johnny Winter, so he would know, right? <laughs> right. So what a beautiful gift he gave me at that bar in England that night. Okay, so when he says that, does it make sense to you immediately? Like, do you know? Immediately. Oh, immediately. I can correct this. And this I was is... cheating. I was cheating the shuffle. But did you know you were cheating? I knew I was cheating. Because I kind of crashed and burned learning blues, right? right? I learned it too quick. And then when he told me that, I go back and I'm like, I'm listening. I'm like, yo, you're so right. And then I spent the next six months, year, making sure I could do that. Because my hand hadn't developed enough that I was comfortable to try to do all the notes. Okay, so when you <laughs> mentioned those three albums that you, you would shed it on to learn the blues, um, I don't know who those drummers would have been. But they George Raines on Tilt a Whirl. Right. Tom Brecklin on uh, Robin Ford. And then it was Mish Puglio on most of the Tony D stuff. Um, George Raines would have been like the most kick-ass blues guy. Brecklin is, is a great blues player. He also does all kinds of stuff. But I saw Brecklin with Robin Ford live at the Beaches Jazz Fest one night, and I'm sort of standing behind him. And it, just his, his flow, his ability, and just his pocket was just unbelievable. And the same with George Raines. Like George Raines is like the godfather of, of Texas blues drumming. Like he really, he's all he's on all early Sue Foley records too, right? So I kind of, I've been listening to him my whole life without really knowing it. And then I identify that, oh, it's George Raines, of course. And I meet him and he's a cool guy. And, you know, it's just, <clears throat> he's a guy that if you want to learn how to play blues drumming, he's like one of the main guys you got to listen to. You know? Who else did you go to when, when Pat said, you're not doing this right? And so you decided to Well, I went back. back to those records, oh, okay. m most particularly. 
because those were the ones that I sort of got a head start on. And then, you know, I just realized that, yeah, I knew I wasn't doing the full-on shuffle. Like I said, my arm wasn't developed enough. And there was times later on where I'm, when I did a big run with Sue Foley, we would do the big festivals and stuff. I would have this chisel in my arm where you could actually see like as if I was a weightlifter and like the, the salmon part of the inside of your, your upper arm. I, I would move my hand at some point and there was like literally like a chiseled muscle had developed because of doing shuffles properly right. in a big stadium with a lot of energy over a long period of time. I had developed this thing, right? So it's all about, it was all about muscle building and muscle memory and just being confident that when I'm playing a shuffle, I didn't want it to suck. I wanted it to, to be amazing. And I developed that over time. And one of the funny thing was Halifax, one of the first call drummers that I knew and grew up with, he, he said to me one day, he's like, I don't know how they play those shuffles. And I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, I just watched you play an amazing show. Yeah, but it was no shuffles. I don't know how to shuffle. I'm like, oh my God, really? That is that possible? He's like, yeah, I never learned how to play it. I never could figure it out. So once he told me that, I took it as my own challenge. It's like, I'm going to learn to shuffle because he can't. <laughs> and I'll show you. <laughs> so you, you get the call that you're now in the band. I get back from Europe and I get a call. And I'm in the band, and the first two gigs are... So, and you're still in living in Ottawa? I was in Ottawa, and I, I told Tony, I got the gig with the Bourbons. He knew the whole picture and was willing to take that risk. Right. So I might have been in Ottawa for maybe three months. You have to move back to Toronto? Yeah, so I, so I, yeah, I moved back to Toronto. Uh, now I'm in Toronto. And Jason said to me, the bass player, he said, you know, you've been here before and you've left before, so um, just promise me you're not going to move away again, and then we'll give you the gig. And I'm like, dude, I'm in. I'm so in. So he said the first gigs was breakfast television on, on <laughs> Much Music, whatever, CTV or whatever yeah, it is. Your first gig was live on television to millions of viewers. At an early, very early rise. And then, at, yeah, it's at 5 a.m. And then that night, we were playing New York City. Oh. So we did breakfast television, packed the van, drove nine hours <laughs> to a club called Nightingale's down in the 14th and 2nd in New York City, small little venue. And we show up. And the way New York sort of runs with bands is they just have bands playing all the time. So a band has their three-hour slot, and then they got to move the gear out, and then the next band comes in for your three-hour slot. So the quicker you get your gear in, the more you're going to be able to play your music. So we show up, and here I am on the sidewalk of New York. I've never been to New York. This kid from Halifax. Now I'm, like, playing New York City. So I'm setting up my hardware on the sidewalk outside the club, Soon as that band's done, we start piling in. They're piling their gear out, and it's a tiny little doorway, right? We're just boom, 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 and then you got to watch that nobody steals your stuff, right? So we get in and we set up, boom. Place is jammed, and we play the full-on Bourbon Tabernacle Choir show. We did two and a half hour show, and then as soon as we were done, there's another band on. We had to pile it all out and get it back in the van. And this was day one of me playing with the Bourbons, so. We ended up doing a residency down there in that club, Nightingales. Uh, we'd go down for a month at a time. 
Wow. And we'd play it every Tuesday night. And then we'd try to get some gigs in the area. Uh, we'd go up to uh, Salt, uh, Salt Springs, go up to Albany, go over to Jersey, do some shows and stuff like that. We were just eating sandwiches and starving to death. We'd all stay. There was uh, Brown's sister had an apartment in Greenwich Village, and nine of us would pile in there and sleep on floors, and she had three or four cats. And Oh, my God. Like, talk about sleeping on floors and eating sandwiches. Well, I did it. <laughs> I definitely did it. <laughs> and, and how did you feel? Did you think, oh, I, I loved it? it. <laughs> I loved every second of it. I really did. Because this is kind of what I wanted to do. Like, I want to be in a van playing music, driving across the country. And there I am doing it. And, you know, the cool thing about New York City and spending all that time there, all of a sudden, Toronto was tamed. Hmm. Because young guy from Halifax comes to Toronto and he's overwhelmed. Well, now you're in New York City. And I'm like, oh, Toronto's not so big anymore. Yeah. Because I kind of conquered New York City comfortably. We, we were all over that city. We'd walk everywhere and go see shows. And it was a really awesome experience. And it lasted for about a year. And, and then forth. what happened? They folded or? Yeah, the band, the band was kind of on the rails at some point, And uh, opportunities came to one of the singers. And he decided to sort of go chase that. And uh, I remember sitting in Brooklyn We were in a big, it was in Jersey City, in a great big warehouse. The funny thing is, <clears throat> you can't leave any gear in a van in New York. So we were staying at the, the bartender's, like she had a, a warehouse space right. where she lived. So we get over to Jersey, and there's an elevator on this building that's about a city block long. It's a long <laughs> building. Her place was on the east side of the building. The elevator was on the west side of the building. So you basically had to walk an entire city block with all the gear in the van. Good thing there were eight or nine of us because it was like four or five trips. And I remember pictures of this hallway. You'd look and it would be this like a mine shaft going under the ocean that would never end. And at one point we went grocery shopping and we stole a grocery cart just so we could get the gear into the, into the space a lot easier. But we did every time we have a gig, we'd have to start two hours early and start getting the gear From the fourth floor down to the other side in the elevator down into the van. <laughs> so when that ended, how did you feel? Because this was Well, the- I remember sitting there. There was a bit of a screaming match between some of the members. And door slams and footsteps down that hallway. And I remember sitting there and I was bawling my eyes out. Because it just felt like a dream had just been pummeled. Wow. I like uh, 95, 96, that was spring 96. So I don't know how old I was, but uh, 20, 29, I was devastated because all the opportunity, like, like the bass player from the David Letterman show was coming to our shows. The spin doctors were coming to our shows. And we were starting to create this vibe in New York that this cool Toronto band, all, all the work we did doing this residency was starting to pay off with people are aware and they're starting to talk about us. And here we are. We're just about ready to crack. We recorded a record in Toronto. We were just about to release it. And the band broke up. Wow. I was devastated. And I had a choice to stay in New York or go back to Toronto. 
at that time, but my own decision, but it was also my own revenue. And I just at that time, I, as you get older, I kind of regret not staying in New York at that time because I had a place to stay. I didn't realize the great opportunity it was, but I decided to, I just wanted to go back to Toronto with my friends who were half the band and I just felt safer there at that time. But yeah, in hindsight, damn, I should have stayed in New York. <laughs> but you know, we all go through that stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, so you come back, and this would be what year? Ninety six. Okay. Yeah, and I'm sort of left bandless. Uh, I get playing some more blues stuff, and uh, the cool thing about blues music in Toronto was that you could actually make money playing blues as opposed to doing cover bands or original artists on Queen Street where you'd make your 20 bucks. People are calling me for blues gigs now. And, and have you joined Raul's band at this point? Uh, 96, 98 was Raul. Okay. Uh, so only a, a couple of years had passed. But what had happened was some of the relationships I developed over time, um, there was this uh, a music mogul, still is, called uh, Graham Stairs. Um, he's got... Uh, he sort of helped get the Bare Naked Ladies get their leg off the ground with some of his compilation records. They did a Bruce Coburn recording, right. Lovers in a Dangerous, and that sort of helped propel that band into their stardom. So, yeah. um, you know, he was, he was a bit of a go-getter, music guy. And um, I knew him from Halifax because I helped him sign a band called uh, Sandbox he hadn't heard of. And I said, come see these guys. He saw them, he signed them, <laughs> right? So anyway, he's got his office in Toronto, and I call him like, hey, can I volunteer, like just hang out at the record store, at your record label? Because I was into that. I worked at record stores. I love that side of the industry. I always did. Right. And so he's like, yeah, you can come in. And he's like, I don't know what you'll do. I'm like, well, just let me file papers or whatever. I just want to be there. He's like, sure. So I'm there for two weeks, and he goes, hey, do you want to play with Davna Doyle? She was assigning to his label. And uh, I'm like, sure, when are the auditions? He goes, you don't have to audition. Just tell me if you want it or not. I'm like, okay. <laughs> did so, you know her out east? Eh? Did you know her out east? I met her in Toronto. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know her out east because she was in Newfoundland, but I knew him. Right. And he knew that if I played with the Bourbons, I'm going to be fine for her. So I did. I, he's always kind of called on me over the next 20 years. He always calls me for any kind of sessions or stuff like that. So we're really good friends. And we had fun, man. And I got to play with Chris Tate from Talk Circle. He was a guitar player at some of the time, so we're good friends now. And I was just a neat little community, how all that built, and that, that helped me stay in the Toronto scene. And then, yeah, I started playing with Raul, doing blues, and um, I wouldn't own a suit had it not been for Raul in the big time, because from day one, he's like, if you want to play in my band, you got to gotta own a suit. And I'm like, ah, oh, cripes. So I had to go buy a suit, because <laughs> we dress up Maybe. with suits, We've always dressed up with suits because he always wanted us to be just that one step better than the other bands who show up in t-shirts, right? right? And it, it stuck, man. That's that's the look. That's how we do that. And then so with Raul, 98, around that same time, the manager for Tony D asked me if I wanted to play with Sue Foley because she was coming back to Toronto. She had, she had a son. Right. back to Ottawa and so he hooked me up with her and I mean I played with her for like 10 years and it was fabulous so you know that's kind of was my 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 path to all that access and it was really the seed of that was Tony D 
getting me up closer to this area. Cause it was, if it wasn't for him, I, I, like after not going, like going to Toronto and then coming home, sort of feeling like, Ooh, a loser. <laughs> he gave me that opportunity to get back up and get closer again. And yeah, yeah. I, I'm forever grateful. And then the connection with Sue Foley. The connection with Sue Foley. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And you know what I realized? What, funny, a funny, uh, <clears throat> a funny fact is that uh, I think I'm the longest standing, well, sitting drummer for Sue Foley. And uh, she had posted a picture of her, of her, of her back side. <laughs> and she's like, I never post my backside. And I realized when she posted that, I'm like, I've probably looked at her backside more than anyone else. <laughs> that's the only side you know. <laughs> um, so that's an important thing because you, you, you play with Sue for 10 years and then that ended for a little while and now you're back with her. And I don't know, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm matching this, but I get the impression that Sue has kind of exploded over the last couple of years. She has exploded tremendously. Like more so than before. And I know yep. before she was quite quite a talent and quite respected I remember meeting her the first time I was totally thrilled and she was an amazing person yeah but I just think that within the last couple of years with the ice queen CD things have just gone big am I correct to say that no that's exactly what's happening and um there's a strategy to that too there's a purpose to that and there's a drive that she has that she's never had before exponentially and when her and I didn't play together for it was probably about 10 year period um, she was doing a, a project with another artist a duo kind of thing and mm -hmm. she kind of got lost in that and she sort of disappeared and I remember the day I typed in suefoley.com on for her website and and the the other artist and her name came up and I just, my stomach sunk. I'm like, no, don't lose yourself. Because it, it sort of felt like she just went into the darkness. But uh, she learned a lot from all of that. And she came out and she wrote some fabulous songs. And the funny thing was, she was telling me, she's like, oh, yeah, you know, that thing didn't work out over the last few years. And I'm like, you don't have to tell me. I read the lyrics on The Ice Queen. You don't have to tell me any details about what you went through because they're all in the lyrics on the ice queen. Mm -hmm. So the ice queen was basically an artist's way of like you learn from your experiences and, and songwriters write about your experiences. Right. So this record came from her coming out of a dark space and with a vengeance going after reclaiming herself to go back after who she really is. And that's 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 the power in songwriting and her ability to put that into music and passion, because you know she moved it back to Canada because she kind of had to. She had a baby, mm -hmm. and so for ten twenty years, she always wanted to get back to Texas. That's where she really got her heels kicked in, like dug in, and where she really learned all what she kind of knows. Um, so for her to get back there was another big boost to her inspiration and her drive and knowing that she's one of these blues, top blues artists. And so her thing now is to just sort of claim that prize by being out there and being present and playing the best shows that we can play. Like she's always sort of 
fixing the show and adjusting this, adjusting that. Like you wouldn't think so in a trio that there'd be much to fix or talk about, but man, anytime we can listen to the show, like if people do videos or something, we're listening and we're criticizing it. We're going, oh, we can do that better. We can do this better. We're always re rejigging that machine so that it's a well-oiled machine and there's no fussing about it. It's just get out there and just plow down that audience with these songs. No messing around. And what what do you see from the person that played behind her many years ago to the person that's playing behind her today? Like, obviously, there's more focus and there's a bit of a drive there. But do you see anything else that's different in her that that makes this moment so special, I guess? She's very, very focused on what she's doing. And I always said like when we come off a show and they're like oh my god she's amazing and i'll say she's like that every show every show she's on like 99 percent there's like it's flawless but is it that different than she the was like that she... 10 years ago 20 years ago she was like that she was always phenomenal player like i don't see i think the difference in what's happening now is the internet and the social media because, you know, as much as she is on the top of her game, one thing I would say, her vocals have gotten tremendously better, focused, strong. Because mm -hmm. she used to do a bit of a quiver, a tremolo or a vibrato. Um, maybe a little too much for some people. You either liked her voice, you didn't like her voice. I, there were some opinions. I always loved her voice. But now... When she sings those notes, she's nailing those notes. There's never a question that she's nailing that note on the vocal. And she's doing this incredible guitar solo. Then she comes right back and starts singing the song again, right? <laughs> I get to sing background vocals with her, too, on a few of the songs. And that's fun, too, because when you're drumming and singing, sometimes the vocal like it meanders around time. So I, I have to sort of follow where she's putting it, and sing along with her in an elastic kind of way, but still keep the beat where the beat is, right? right. So uh, that's a lot of fun. But I think the, the, the quicker rise that you're seeing with this record in Sue Foley is, number one, it's an unbelievable record. Mm -hmm. Number two, it's an unbelievable live show. But what's happening, what didn't happen 10, 15 years ago, is that all the presence of social media that people are creating and that she is creating, contributing to with the Instagrams and posts and all the positivity. And the other thing is awareness to her space is she's got Jimmy Vaughn and Billy Gibbons basically backing her like their uncles trying to, you know, pitch their cousin. It's like, hey, check out this lady, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like they're really, they've really helped accelerate the awareness of her because anyone who loves Jimmy or Billy will see, oh, who's this Sue Foley that's now sort of in their space. And so I would say all of the social media and all of the talk around how good she is by these guys, they're handing her guitars. They gave her, they each gave her a pinky. So she now has three pinkies. That's a, that's a Telecaster, uh, pink paisley telecaster yeah. they've each individually given her them because the the shape of her other one is 30 years old and all the veneers falling off and stuff so um 
they're just the biggest supporters. And uh, I met I met Billy in in uh, we played in L.A. and he came out and he hung out all night. He held my hand. He talked to us. He get up, and it's just like it's so amazing to have these unbelievable artists in your camp. Yeah. So I think that's a big part of like obviously Sue can hold her own and she's killing it every show. And she's, she's a professional, Mm -hmm. you know, she doesn't stay up drinking. She eats well. She keeps herself healthy, you know? So it's just all coming together all at once. And you know, I just, I just see it propelling even farther over the next year or two. I mean, Leo kind of talked about this when I interviewed him a year or so ago. Um, but it must be neat to be on this ride. Well, you know what's most neat about it for me? I get to play with Sue Foley again. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who gets rehired by an artist that you haven't really worked with in almost 10 years. So what had happened there was she put out a call for Kickstarter for, for funding for her record. And I was watching her her Facebook stuff, and she's playing with these people. She was in Toronto playing yeah. with other artists, and I was just like, oh, man, I'd love to play with her again. So when it ended last time, was there any conflict, or was it just... It was just time at right. that time. I think I think my younger attitude sort of pushed her to just go, man, I'm just going to change with the band. She needed something fresh. Right. She went on and did some other stuff, uh, and then she did that duo. Um, so... I think at the time, yeah, I think I definitely learned from that whole experience. Um, but she had put out a Kickstarter. I gave her 20 bucks. And I hadn't talked to her in about 10 years. And she sends an email right back. Oh, thanks, Tom. That's awesome. Appreciate that, you know. Right, good good to hear from you. And I was like, yeah, cool. And I was going to say, I was going to type, hey, I'm around if you want to, you know, if you want me to play. But I just thought, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait two weeks and then I'll approach her. Because I didn't want her to think that I was doing that to get <laughs> 20 bucks. I wasn't. I was just like, yeah, I'll give you 20 bucks. Yeah. But I was also thinking, oh, I'd love to play with her again. But it, I didn't connect that. And, I, and then I thought, I don't want to connect that because <laughs> that's not really fair. So two weeks later, me not approaching her about playing with her, she approached me. She's like, hey, Tom, uh, do you want to do some shows together? And I was like, yes. <laughs> so we talked a bit, and, and I told her about Soul Stack, and I was doing bookings and sort of management and stuff. And she's like, oh, well, you know what? We're putting a team together for this new release, and I'd really like you to be a part of it. And That's I was a, like... It's a- drummer or as yes like, team member? yeah as a drummer for sure but then also the contributing of of helping with discussions right. um like she is self-managed like no one else i know she is like sue foley is self-managed but she needs a team around her to help facilitate right. and to help her think through some ideas and stuff so um you know we've been friends for over 20 years so when i got that opportunity to come back and play with her I was like a dog to a bone. I was so excited and so thrilled to be back. But coming back didn't mean I was going to be playing with her now for the next two years. But that's what it ended up being. Do you know the moment you play with her again that there is that connection again? Absolutely. Yeah. There's some with Sue. I do it with John Knight too. But uh, more so with Sue is I, I read, subconsciously read what she's doing when I'm playing. And I'll tell you, as a drummer, 
I'm not looking at the dancing girls or the audience. <clears throat> I'm looking at the artist who's playing the song. I look at Sue. And when she moves across the stage, my head moves across the stage. When she moves back across, my head moves back across. And I'm on her like poop to a blanket. And uh, I noticed one day, I actually, I looked at her ear the whole time, just stared at her ear. And she had said to me after that show, she goes, oh, you really killed it tonight. You're awesome. And I was like, oh, thanks. Because I was experimenting myself with, you know, I look at her head or her shoulders or wherever she's going, her legs. Because at any given time, she might flick a leg or flick an arm or flick an eyelash. And it means something's going to change, like break it down or bring it up or whatever. And it's those cues that she gives at those moments that if you're looking away for that second, you miss that cue. And then you're like, oh, darn, I missed a cue. But are those cues discussed? <laughs> no, no, no. Right? She doesn't Never. say, when I do this, I want you to do this. No, God, no, no. That's the language of playing music as musicians is that those cues, once you're with an artist, you kind of get the idea of not necessarily what the cue means, but the cue means something. <laughs> and so you've got to be musically inside of that, knowing that, okay, if we're here, if she's cueing, chances are we're going to go there, like change it to high to low or stop. Sometimes she'd want us just to stop and she'll do a little noodle and then we come back in. But you don't know when any of that's going to happen. So it's like you're not just up there playing physically and hitting these drums and playing the arrangement musically. You're also watching that artist for what's coming next. Every second of every song, you got to be on it. And I love that. Because when I first started playing drums, I had my music band teacher. I went through music, uh, through the music school, um, not really schooled. I was a drummer who would, he'd never give me charts because I couldn't read charts. But I was playing Dixieland band. I was playing a jazz band. And eventually, Tom Rusinak, this, this teacher, would hire me to go out and do weddings, parties, anything with him and his older guys. And I just said, oh, well, I don't know the songs. He goes, ah, you'll get them. We get on stage, we're at a wedding. He turns around and goes, this is three, four. And he goes, one, two, three, two, uh, boom, chick, chick, boom, chick, chick. Then he counts it in, and then it's up to me to boom, chick, chick for him for the whole song. But he really taught me trial by fire, playing on the edge of your seat, and not playing to a, to a chart. That's why he never gave me a chart. He didn't want me to be stuck to a page where all the horn players were. I had a horn player buddy. I'm like, hey, dude, come and jam with us in my mom's basement. He goes, you got any charts? I'm like, no, I don't even need charts. I barely know how to play the drums myself. How would I write you charts, right? No, I don't have a chart. So my music teacher knew the kind of drummer I was. He knew, don't give him a chart. Just let him play with his ears and his eyes. And so this is like 13 years old playing with this. And I think when you asked earlier, where did I get the confidence? I think that's where it came from. Because I, 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 you know, I probably did 100 shows with this music band teacher. Not to do Nothing to do with school right. all out doing parties and stuff you know this young guy playing drums and he really gave me that experience to learn on the edge of your seat and get through the song and knowing that you did a good job because you're focused and I think that's the biggest thing is being focused on what's going on at every moment so you've mentioned soul stack which is another band you're involved in mm -hmm. um, which is a great band um, how do you juggle between Raul Sue, Soul Stack. Yeah, and I know you're it, also involved in other projects, but 
How does that work? Well, it has to work as I remember asking some of my drumming idols, uh, like in Halifax, like, how do you play with more than one band? Because I was confused with it as, as, a, as a teen. And he said, well, you know what you have to do is you have to set up sort of a, a, a priority system, like a, a, a tier system. So whatever, whatever band is giving you the most work or the one you love the most that you want to play with the most becomes your priority. So when anybody else calls, you have to say, yeah, sure, I'll take that gig. But if my A band calls me, I will have to sub out. So just you can hire me under that right. situation. So if... Is that difficult, though? Well, it's difficult. It's, yeah, I mean, you get emotional about it. It becomes sort of, you buck heads and, you know, sometimes it's a challenge. And so everybody knows, like with me right now with Sue Foley, that is the priority. And I, I jokingly said to somebody the other day, it's like, how do you, how do you choose which band to play? And I said, whatever band takes me to Europe, I'm <laughs> playing with. That's my priority band, right? Um, I've done tons of work with Sue in Europe before this too um but i just love going over there it's just great it's just totally different you know the music scene's different the the audiences are different and it's just great to sort of have that different environment around you and um but when it comes to priorities so like raul he'll sort of ask ahead of time hey are you available in these span of dates or whatever and then he'll know if he's booking if i'm available if i'm not available he obviously prefers if i am because he doesn't have to do much work or think about it anytime there's a new drummer in a band it's always different it doesn't matter how fabulous that drummer is it's just always going to be different because i've been in realm the big time for 21 years right and i realized i was playing with john knight for probably like 18 years and then Sue Foley, before, like right. 20, you know, not the whole time, but... Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. So you seem to have this long, long-term relationship with most of your major bands. Yeah. What do you think it is about you that enables that? Well, I think the part about that is that when I'm in a band, it's also about relationships. It's also about dealing with people and family i come from a huge family in in the east coast and so i'm very personable around a lot of people i'm comfortable in a room um with family and stuff and what i realize is that like we're all on a musical journey and we're all on it together and so i remember years ago with john knight we used to play at the bird's nest in chicago's upstairs and I remember saying to him, I want to play drums for you the rest of my life because it's so fun. It's so cool. And I like playing drums with you. So there's nothing really that can get in the way of those relationships. And with Raul, earlier on, I, I went off, played with Sue, and he went through the sub thing. And, and I didn't do it for 10 years. And then I called him back and like, Sue wants me to go to Europe in June. I got to bump with a couple of dates. And he goes, here we go again. But he said it in a nice way. He's like, yeah, I get it. Because he knows the opportunity mm-hmm. that exists. And he knows he can't provide that. And same with Soulstack. You know, they, they think it sucks that I'm not around as much. But they understand. You got you to gotta go when, you know, like Ice Queen, we might tour another year. I don't know what happens after that. You know, I hope I'm involved in whatever the next thing she's doing. But, you know, there's no carving stone. But what there is, and this is what I cling to, is that we have relationships and we are friends 
it's not just about a hired gun backing up an artist. I've done that too. And it's not as fun, trust me. It's not as fun because the demands are so much higher and it's like on a professional level, but it just doesn't have that same feeling as playing with people that you've known for 20 years. Like, how cool is that? Like, when people see Raul in the big time, they're like, oh, my God, you guys are so tight. It's amazing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, we've been playing together for 20 years. We don't do the same move. It's not the same moves, but it's the same no. I know what that guitar player is is about to do or what he's capable of doing or some of the some of the peaks that he does. I know when he's going there and I go there with him and we bring it to a higher energy than just guys going do 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 like just playing surface, right? right? We know each other so well that we we take that to the stage and that's what makes people see us having fun cuz we're just a bunch of friends hanging out playing music, just like Soulstack. The same kind of thing. Like we, we play the bloody hell out of our out of our instruments every show we do. I'm playing at the top of my game. Like sometimes missing stuff because I'm trying so hard, you know. Like, and we're all like that. All six of us. It's like, weren't you talking about the drummer who always hits the snare and wondered how that happened? Yeah, the snare. The, the yeah, that's right. The accuracy of the snare. <laughs> sometimes it happens. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking down, going, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" <laughs> Um, my final question to you, and thank you for doing this on your birthday. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling from the very beginning that you were goal-oriented, unlike many musicians. But you had, you decided at one point you wanted to do this. Then you decided you wanted to um, join the Bourbon Tabernacle Choir. Tell me about goals. Do yeah. you have goals at this point? I have goals. And, you know, some goals I, I approach and I attain. And I remember as a kid watching the Junos. And I remember someone like Colin James gets, James gets up and he wins a Juno. And <clears throat> I'm still in Halifax, but I'm watching these people not as rock stars or as celebrities. I'm actually at that age seeing them as colleagues. Like that's somehow I had the confidence to know that, oh, Colin's won. One day I'm going to hang out with him. One day I'm going to play with him. And I have. Mm-hmm. And I had this innate confidence as a child. And I think that came from the band, music band teacher, making me play these songs that I didn't have any clue, but I did it well and he loved it. And so I, th- this confidence that I have that I always felt like I was a part of the music industry. I used to buy the Music Express magazine, the Rolling Stone, and a lot of stuff. I worked in record stores for 10 years. I saw all the product come through. I had bands like Moxie Fruis and Bare Naked Ladies do in-stores at my record store. And I got to know them. Junkhouse came in. Uh, Tragically Hip came in. So I already felt like these people were already in my space. And the funniest thing happened on New Year's one night. Bourbons are playing Lee's Palace, New Year's 95. And I remember uh, the Rio Statics were all hanging out on the left side of the stage. And we come off after a set, and I went to the bass player, Jason Mercer, who's been one of my best friends. And I went up to him, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. He's like, what? I said, the Rio Statics are all standing over there. I can't believe it. And he stopped and he looked at me. He goes, Tom, you're one of them. And I was like, oh, my God. Because <laughs> here I was playing with the Bourbons in the sold-out Lee's Palace. And, yeah, the Rios are there. They may have played the Palace the week before. 
So Jason just sort of reminded me that I've kind of, I've arrived. And it blew my mind because I'm still this kid from Halifax who wanted to be in this industry. And then he sort of had to tap me on the shoulder and go, dude, you're here. Look around you. These are your colleagues. And that blew my mind, you know. So goal-wise, I have other goals, and I've been writing and recording my own solo record for the last 25 years, <laughs> maybe more. <laughs> I'm a songwriter. I've been writing songs my whole life. I had MIDI keyboards, drum machines. Um, I probably have about 200 songs that I've written. That's a one big album. It's a, that's a big, fat record, yes, for sure. My first record will be a box set. <laughs> really expensive. <laughs> It'll say from, from 1980 to 2020. Right? Will you get this done soon? Uh, well, I, I still have a goal to do it. I'm doing a project with, I have uh, two sisters, two older sisters, and we sing together. We have our whole lives, kitchen parties in Halifax. And uh, so we're, we've been wor working on a record for the last two years. Um, most of it is my songwriting 40% is my, my other sister's songwriting. And uh, we want to do this, this sort of boutique project for the 350 relatives that we have on the East Coast. So if it goes beyond that, awesome. But the goal is to finish this record where we write the songs, we record the music, and we sing. And I'm about 80% there. But for the last two years, I haven't had a focus on it because I've been touring with Sue. And I realize sort of, you can't do everything that you want to do in the time you have. So I need to get back to that and focus on that. Um, so that's called Bona Voice is what we call it. And my own writings too, like, again, with my own songwriting, I, I have a studio set up in my basement. I've, I've got the software. I've got all the mics. I've got a drum kit set up. And I actually would do tracking for anyone else who needs drums on a song. You can send me the MP3 and I, I can record it. And I had a, an engineer come in to my space and I said, come down, I want you to hear the drums I'm tracking. And I hit play and he's listening and goes, oh my God, you recorded these drums in this room? Because he's looking around, it's a small room. He's like, I can't believe how good these drums sound. And then he grabbed a drumstick and he hit the three drums. And he goes, ah, now I know why your drums sound so good on the recording because they sound so good tuned in the room. They're they sounded great. So, I mean, that's another goal that I have is to do more of those kind of recording and producing. I've produced some records already um, for family, more or less. But uh, I just love, I love doing any aspect of music. So, uh, yeah, I've got some other goals. And I'll get my solo record out at some point. But as an artist, it's so much harder than it is as a drummer. Because mm -hmm. the artist, you're exposing your soul and your ideas and your concepts. And I hearken back to the days of, of, of like Toto, because I don't write blues music. I write pop music, right. right? So when I get the grumbles when I say Toto in a room full of blues people, <laughs> it's kind of given me that inhibition of putting my own music out because my music is more like Toto than it would be blues. But I'm, I'm, I think it's a bit of a mix of both because I'm in charge. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. It's, it was a real pleasure. It was a pleasure, yes. Thank you. Thank you.